0: Welcome to the Monster Podcast. This is Justin.
1: And this is Jay.
0: Today we have a very special guest. We have Luke Lyon of of that T206Life.com, longtime T206 collector. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Jay and Luke and I were just chatting about what we're going to cover, and we thought because Luke's old school, we might as well start with his collecting story and he can let us know a little bit about how he got into this and where he ended up
2: cool um yeah like I, I started collecting in 2010 about at least that's when I, re- I always think that because that's when I signed up to net 54 and uh I started out with like pretty typical I think like not not much of a budget and I was just like trying to get low grade cards and I was going to go for the set Actually, one thing I joke about is I did a bunch of research before I started buying anything, and for like a month, I had the idea that I would get the whole set in SGC 30 holders, like just be (laughs) super OCD about it, and realized pretty quick that wasn't, that was not very feasible. So anyway, I I, uh, like plugged along. I bet I was spending like 50 bucks a week, and like, you know, cards were a lot cheaper then, so you'd get like john mcgraw in like fair condition for 30 bucks and a couple commons for like 25 bucks and anyway i like just plugged along and i got up to about 200 cards and realized that like i had a couple packages like sitting on my desk that i hadn't opened and i was just like losing interest kind of like i like i had a I had a package for like three weeks and I knew what it was. I can't remember what the card was, but I just hadn't even opened it. And so I, I realized that I was kind of like just set collecting as a default. And that was when I, I thought about it and was like, you know, I think these backs are pretty cool. And if I, if I change what I'm doing and I sold a bunch of these, I could actually buy like a handful of, you know, hall of famers with Hindu backs or whatever. So thought about it for a while. And then I, I switched and I sold like basically everything I had and started on the 150-350 series of just my plan then was I was gonna try to get one cool back of everybody in the 150-350 series and uh go from there. And I ended up like staying on that series for a long time. And there was like a point when I had like I'd have like five Frank Chance red portraits. Like I had a Hindu, Old Mill, or like two Old Mills, and a Sovereign 150, and I at a certain point I was like, "Wow, I've got like 300 cards from this first series. Like maybe it's time to sell some of these and move on to the rest of the set." And so that's kind of that's kind of how I and started to where I am, and like that was a good that was a good decision, because that was about 10, maybe 9, 10 years ago I did that, and that, you know, my interest hasn't hasn't waned yet, and um, I'm not going after the set, I'm basically just going after cards I like, and I figure someday maybe I'll just end up kind of close enough to a set that it'll make sense, but for now I'm just targeting certain cards and kind of juggling the collection stuff. Cool stuff comes in a lot of times I sell something that I like a little bit less, so
1: do you yeah. have a sen- do you have a sense of what percentage of the set you have right now
2: not really i I bet it's I bet it's over fifty but not probably not way over there's like like i don't have too many minor leaguers and I don't have any southern leaguers, so that's a big chunk
1: yeah it's interest it's an interesting perspective I think for a lot of our listeners who many of whom are building the the monster themselves and and may may or may not be following you know some sort of a salary cap process but you know Luke's been on sort of his own path for quite a long time do you do you have a sense about why you don't think the set caught with you I'm just curious
2: I don't know exactly but like the symptoms of it were like I would buy like a lot of five like port to fair cards and then when they arrived like they were kind of too beat up and 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 like I didn't have a big connection with them. I don't know. It the fact one thing that's been like constant for me with collecting T206s and when I've like done moved on to other stuff is if if they're if it's too common and you could just buy it any day, I, I feel like I don't really have a urgency to own it. So that was a big part of it where I I just had like stacks of, you know, Piedmont 350s. They felt pretty interchangeable. And like my budget, you know, was, I would just needed to keep plodding along super slow. And it just wasn't exciting to be like, well, in three months, I'll have like 20 more of these, but it's not really like bringing me too much joy. And so basically then I just decided like, I've just, my new rule was like I have to love a card and if I don't even if it's really cool objectively and other people would think it's amazing if if it doesn't if I don't actually love it then move it for something else that's a great way to collect and we talk
0: a lot about or have talked a lot about on the
2: podcast
0: how this is t206 is something you can collect a million different ways and some people are doing back runs and some people are doing master sets and some people are doing five twenties and some people are doing five twenty fours. But I think, yeah, what it really comes down to is like you say, Luke, you know, what sparks joy for you uh to use the term for Marie Kondo. I mean yeah. <laughs> you know, what's gonna what's gonna get you excited for the mail to come? What's gonna get you excited to, you know, open your safe or go to the safety deposit box and, and look at and play with? and i think a lot of people get caught up in just building the set because that's what they think they should do but actually there's a lot more interesting ways um to engage with and i think with the cards and i think that that was something that i came to later on and i'm excited to build the set i started building the set i started i got i got my first two T206s in 1994 but i didn't really start building the set until I don't know if you can hear my cat in the background there. Um, and, you know, the early 2000s, I really started picking up more of them. But the idea was already to build the set. And then along the way, you, you know, take a detour. And I started upgrading the backs on my Hall of Famers or working on other back projects. But what was the I'm curious what the back scene was like in 2010 when you were snatching up all these Hindus and other backs. Sounds like pretty easily versus certainly price-wise and, and demand-wise versus now. Um, how hard was it to find what you were looking for back then? And where were you, where were you getting those things?
2: It was, in a lot of ways, like finding the stuff was about the same as now. It was just like the demand was way different. And um, people people didn't like prize some of the, you know, Hall of Famers with tough combos as much. Like, and it kind of rubbed off on me, unfortunately, too. Like, I, I arrived to this point, like, I I got a couple cobs recently, but as of, like, six months ago, I didn't have any cobs because my, my outlook was kind of formed way back then. And it was like, it was like, oh, you know, these are, these are just available. And, like, I want, I want my red cob to have, like, a Cycle 460 back or tougher you know, maybe I'll find a Lennox. And I just passed up, you know, tons of affordable Tolstoys and, you know, sovereign 350s and stuff that would be really cool to have. But I just had this mindset of like, stash away the super rare stuff. And like, you know, it led me to to not really keeping any of the high profile Hall of Famers and kind of off track with that answer. But basically, it was like, um, when something would show up to market, there would just be way less interest. And um, it really felt like there were about like five or 10 people actively collecting backs. One thing that's kind of interesting nowadays is there's tons of people like us who are on, you know, on the Facebook group and like active every day, like doing something with collecting every day. But back in like, 2011 when I started collecting backs like a lot of the guys who collected backs were they were like just dabbling like they knew they had a lot of knowledge and they'd been doing it for like 20 years or 10 years or whatever but they would like check ebay once a month and they would like post on their net 54 account like once a month and so like when I started being like like I need I I, like feel compelled to like work on cards every day like I there weren't too many people doing that at the time and so by just being on eBay every day I was finding uh I was finding a lot of like underappreciated stuff at good prices and early on I I uh you know stashed away a lot of the cool stuff I have now that just the price would be crazy and the demand would, you know, somebody would want it more than me. When did you start to see things change? Honestly, I feel like when I met Jay was like, right after that, I joined the Facebook group and realized that there were like a lot of people coming into the hobby and getting interested in packs. I would, I would say like four years ago, it I
1: was going to put snowball. that at like 2018, maybe beginning of 2018. Okay. Something yeah. like that, give or take. That
0: sounds about right. Yeah. I, what was happening around then that, yeah, that you think it caused the, diff, the change?
2: I'm not really sure, but once I became aware of the, the Tobacco Row group, I, like, I could be wrong, but I felt like that group did a lot to, like, bring in new people and, like, build excitement and... and I I could have, like, the actual underlying cause wrong, but I I had the feeling at the time that I started – that I joined that, that I was like, oh, like, there's, like, 40 people doing a back set in this group. And before – you know, a couple years before that, I only knew, like, three people doing that.
1: I think a big part of that, trying to think back myself, I think some of the early Net 54 camaraderie that some of the old-time posters – are, are, are very nostalgic for, I think was replicated on Facebook with some of the Facebook groups. And I think that the social nature, the ability to, you know, communicate with people that aren't our are significant others about all this stuff, uh, drove a lot of interest. I, 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 I'm on board with that. I think that's right. Right on.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it makes sense. Cause that's fun. Like I check, I check those, you know, I check that group every day pretty much.
0: Yeah, I mean, joining Tobacco Row meeting joining that room uh, definitely was game changing for me too in terms of not only meeting other people who shared my enthusiasm, which was really great because I hadn't known anyone my entire life until I joined Tobacco Row, who he was really excited about tobacco cards the way I was. Um, so, and then I think
1: to Luke's other point about sort of the day to day nature, where I think many of the the set builders today are. Are similar, you know, daily collector and daily active in in the collecting world. You know, the social nature is a huge, huge component of that. Just because if you're if you're doing this alone on an island, then you're going to lose interest and move on to other things. And like Luke said, maybe check in once a month.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That that makes sense. That those guys like really liked it, but they didn't have much to, you know, like you really love something, but there's just no outlet for it, you know.
1: And, not, and the show is once a month, you know, an in-person show with yeah.
2: camaraderie. Yeah, I collect uh, certain T207 backs, and I have, like, one person that cares about it, and we message each other, like, three times a year. <laughs> and that's, like, that's what it would be like if you didn't have a, a community of people who thought the same stuff was cool.
1: So do you see a parallel between that sort of slightly narrower demand t T207 vaccine and, and what T206s were like a couple years ago.
2: Yeah, definitely. They're, they come to market so much less, but but it's, yeah, I think it's similar. It feels like there's about like five people who care.
1: And that that's also to another interesting point that some of this stuff that is super, super scarce, maybe not T206 related, but some of the odd issues that are crazy scarce, it doesn't often bring the crazy money because... You know the money is a function of supply and demand and t206 is sort of sit in this perfect storm where there's you know reasonable supply but tons and tons of demand
2: yeah it's it's definitely unique in a ton of ways and that's that's the biggest one Luke what were some of the things that you were paying attention
0: to early on that you're you're happy you were you're paying attention to uh, in terms of scarcity and backs maybe uh, and what are some of the things that you wish you were paying attention to that you weren't that you're now kicking yourself about.
2: That's a good question. Um, the The things that have worked out really well was I. So I had a pretty small budget, but I was I was devoting like a few hours a week to research, and I I like really wanted you know Carolina brights backs drum back, broadly four sixty backs, but there was no clear path to making that happen so I started to just look for inefficiencies in the market and like what was undervalued and my uh basically it all centered on 150 350 old mills because most of the cool most of the hall of famers in the set are from are from the first series and most of the portraits at least most of the portrait hall of famers are from the first series and the old mills are usually lower pop than the hindu brown hindus and so basically it just was like a quick rule of thumb that i came to of like if you want the best back for a 150 350 subject you need the old mill and i started at a time when there weren't a lot of people who cared about that. So like I ended up basically like old mill became like my favorite thing to collect, but it wasn't really cause like that I loved the back specifically. It was that like I couldn't afford Carolina brights and I found a way to collect rare stuff in my budget basically. And so I started i uh actually at a certain point, I switched my mindset from like one one card of every one fifty three fifty subject with with some back to to like I was gonna try for the whole old mill subset of the the first series and um it was a lot easier back then. there weren't a lot of people who who really cared, and you know I think to most people an old mill back was an old mill back and it it wasn't super interesting, and then uh, the second part was. This one is like not as big of a deal because it's sort of just about like the way the cards have appreciated in value, but uh, I, I probably as a back collector, I probably should have realized that some some players in the three three fifty series have just only a few backs you can find them with and. That if people start collecting backs, these are gonna be these are gonna start to be pretty hard to get pretty valuable guys like uh guys like Becker and obviously cross and um there's a ton of other ones, but uh like O'Hara, New York, where you there's only a sovereign three fifty and so anybody that wants a back set needs that card so that's just sort of I like. I'd be like oh I should I really should have seen that coming but it that didn't change much so um overall pretty happy with like what I did foresee you know back then yeah I mean and to your
0: point about old mills also I mean I think to most collectors even now and even collectors who are paying a little bit of attention to backs old mill is still considered a pretty common back and it's not really until you dig in to population reports and you start to notice that and when we did uh, our episode number seven, we covered how to use population reports to inform decisions and some of the benefits and also the drawbacks of the reports, their accuracy and all that. But it seems like you're using, you know, you're paying attention to data and using data to guide collecting decisions, probably more than most collectors do. But it's paid off for you.
2: That's one thing that I've always like. It's kind of been a while since I posted on any of those like net F54 threads where somebody's like, I'm new to collecting, but for, for a bunch of years, I tried to help on all those. And one thing that helped me for sure was like, I, I just like spent way more time like trying to learn than, than trying to buy early on. And I did, I did, I think I did kind of find some, some cool niches that where I could afford something cool because it can it can be real daunting when you when you're like, I'm gonna collect the set, but then you're gonna do it the same way as everyone else. And like you just look around and so many people have a bigger budget than you. Like I think a lot of people probably quit if if they don't find their own way to like have something significant to them and if it's just, you know, my collection's always gonna I'm always gonna like wish that I had a better one looking around for me like finding a way for mine to be like special for me
1: was important to to a, an outside observer i think listening to you talk about your your blog and your collecting i think it's it, it's very clear why you've been very good at this just you know the, the you've actually put you know individual thought and made your collection yours not just playing you know follow the trail and identifying market trends and market inefficiencies and I, I think, you know, for some subset of collectors, I think that's what it's all about. And that, that's really cool to hear um, people putting in a lot of effort and reaping, reaping cool cards as rewards. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing, Luke, that you've covered on your site that I think might be and we've spoken about and I think might be useful to folks as they're looking to identify, you know, what the way they're going to engage in the set is. And what might be special that other people haven't picked up on yet, although as time goes on, there's less and less of that, is the issue of aggregate and relative scarcity. And I wonder if you might just want to dive into that for a few minutes and explain what that means and how you can use it uh, for your collecting.
2: Yeah, it's it's been a while since I read that article. I, I I think what I what I was getting at was like kind of what we were talking about about old mills like. Old Mills in general are considered pretty easy because there's so many 350 series and 350, 460 series cards where an Old Mill is like it's just like a polar bear and people don't think too hard about it but then you move on up to the 150, 350 series and you like you find like a Johnny Evers portrait with an Old Mill back like that's pretty tough to find stuff like that um and that was that was basically the focus of my collection early on just just because I felt like I could get the most bang for my buck of you know might might only be like one say like build on of an old mill portrait you might see like one of those in four years, but it won't break the bank if you do find one at least back then now, who knows but uh so that was that was kind of the idea was like where where is there some scarcity and some like some like legit rarity uh within the set that that isn't apparent to the naked eye and you know that's one thing like if you everything's harder collecting nowadays than it was then but if you if you don't have a huge budget but you have like the will to to spend a bunch of time researching you can you can use that to your advantage and and find some cool stuff you know it this is going off on a tangent but like I think if I was starting collecting now with the prices and and let's say I had the same budget I had 10 years ago I would be looking at like print errors and like oddities because nobody cares and you could build a really fun collection of of scraps and and missing colors and you know just oddball stuff that you can't find every day you can you can buy those for the price of a of a normal card that is in the same condition so basically if i was if i was starting i would i would kind of do the same thing like where can i find where can i find something cool and rare that's like you know people can't just buy you have to find it and then and it's not easy
1: so one of the things that Luke really nicely identifies with his old collection is that, you know, not every back, front back combo is inherently the same. So just because the back says old mill doesn't mean that it's just going to be the same caliber of card and, and and same relative cost all the way through the set. As, as Luke has identified, some of the old mills are really easy and might cost, you know, 50 bucks. But there are a number of old mills from the 150-350 series that are extremely, extremely difficult. Sort of no one really knows how much they're going to cost because they just don't even come up enough. And this idea of comparative scarcity or relative scarcity, whatever you want to call it, is just not exactly saying this card is an old mill back, therefore it is blank. It's trying to understand a little bit more about the, the you know, the subtlety of the combo before trying to ascertain a value or, or the, the overall population. Yeah. There's a lot of there's
2: a lot of interesting stuff happening in the in the market these days. I just um, I th- I think it's real interesting how some of the some of the guys who have very few backs are are selling for pretty huge numbers, and like some of the old mills we've been talking about are selling for huge numbers. Like over the years, I've I've occasionally had doubles of some of these cards, and I, I've sold them for big numbers privately, but not ever really known what would happen if some of them went were publicly sold, and and that that part's been kind of interesting. Like with David Hall, you know, I think George Brown, Washington, Old Mill, PSA four, PSA three, maybe like went for like four thousand bucks, you know, some of those. Yeah, I think at least in my experience
0: the last few years i think some of this has to probably has to do with kind of the influencer culture in our own little community and i think there has been you know people who know better kind of giving people either investing publicly in some of these players and other folks seeing that and then doing some copycat stuff um but i also think just having these conversations more openly than you used to be able to about Nap LaJoy and Collins being better players than some of the other Hall of Famers and people just starting to acknowledge that
1: and then reflect that in their purchasing. Um, And as more and more more people actually study the players that they're they're collecting, I mean, I think most people have a decent sense that Ty Cobb was pretty good, but uh, there are a number of Hall of Famers that I still probably haven't really looked up their numbers, and I don't really know why they're Hall of Famers. I just, someone told me they were, and that's why the card was, you know, 75 bucks instead of 25 bucks, but actually ranking them in terms of playing prowess, not whether or not they were on the Cubs is is is, is a different matter.
0: Yeah, and shout out to Ellen and Tom Sopala with for their book T206 Collection, that I think is one of the best ways, if you're collecting the set, to really learn a little bit about every single player. Um, Full-color photos, they don't give us any residuals for this, so we're just doing this because we feel I feel strongly about this book that it's a great way to engage with the set and learn about these players and yeah maybe understand why uh Naplajouay should be worth more than a uh, Fred Clark despite them both
2: being in the Hall of Fame for example
1: Eddie Collins still might be underrated
2: he was really good Yeah Wijwaye might be too honestly
1: yeah I think speaker speaker was Another one who was on that list of didn't move for forever just because, and now he has. He was yeah. also very,
0: he was also very good, especially because it's a rookie card.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think what else, what other cards in the set are kind of like that. Bill Dollin prices are exploding right now.
1: Yeah, R- Waddell is another one where just he's sort of getting the cult following because he's really cool and really interesting. I mean, he he was a stud pitcher, but he's getting the following because he was a lot of fun. If you've never read Rube Waddell's Wikipedia, highly recommend it.
2: <laughs> There's also a certain uh, internet influencer who's hoarding his cards and yeah. Yeah, the price is triple. <laughs> when we say influencer too,
0: we're talking about someone who maybe a few hundred people care about <laughs> what you're doing, not like uh, Kim Kardashian <laughs> here, uh, who can sell a million widgets to anybody, anytime. Uh, but yeah, there are certain collectors who have a good eye and have well well respected collections who are you know have been openly advocating for some of these guys um the bill Dolan example is interesting and i think jay and i've talked about him a little bit there's a slim chance he might make it into the hall of fame um and he's got two desirable cards two portraits to make them even sexier uh in the t206 set very good player in his own right Definitely. probably ought
1: probably ought to make the hall of fame honestly yeah yeah probably. I mean, I don't know about 100 years later, but probably ought to be there. But, like, yeah. I mean, his cards are now four times as much as some of the lower-tier Hall of Famers, so go figure.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of buzz about him, people speculating that if he does, you know, he could make it later in 2021, uh, it would give a boost to the card. But the cards were already worth more than, as you say, yeah. Jay, some of the they other could, Hall of Famers. Boost it. Yeah, they were <laughs> boosted. And, you know, the, the Boston – I was – Jay and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. I mean, the Boston card isn't particularly tough compared to other – cards um the brooklyn one is for sure
2: but it's basically it, it kind of shows how effective like hoarding can be in, in raising prices like you don't have to you don't have to have like 500 of a card for it for other people to start being like damn i gotta bid more if i want this one you know yeah
1: it's that and then it's also the multiplicative pictures if someone posts a picture of 15 of one guy it just looks cool
2: yeah that's true too
1: (laughs) but there are a number of commons that you know whether someone's collecting long-term or short-term just it makes it a little bit tougher for everyone else to get get that one if they always you know are interested sort of the basic card card collecting economics
2: yeah it's also interesting how how like the prices for a given player or pose or what have you can like just go up quite a bit and it doesn't change anybody's appetite they're just like oh that Dolan card is like worth twice what it was two months ago all right i'll pay that <laughs> still need yeah. it yeah, yeah
0: exactly if, if, yeah exactly if you're building the set you still need it um unless you're not building a you know if you're building a hall of fame set then you don't care about ball Dolan. but he's another card with a very tough old mill back correct yeah,
2: his Brooklyn, his, uh, Brooklyn old mill is very yeah. tough.
1: That's actually, I I I'll, I'll throw a little of my collection in there. I built a Bill Dollin background like four years ago, stealing it from a buddy, and finished it like three years ago, and I've never touched them since. But um, they were all like forty bucks, and they're <laughs> not, like forty bucks anymore. <laughs> that was that was a smart move. Oh, uh, that was just like total luck. I'm just like, hey, this is a cool portrait. Maybe I'll buy some of these.
2: Yeah, that's actually a funny thing if you think about it. Like, basically all T two hundred sixes have just gone up. So everything we bought, we can just be like, "Oh, smart move on my part," you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all those Walter Johnsons, great.
0: <laughs> I was trying to explain it to my wife recently, and I don't think she believes it. But I, I, uh, I did try to tell her that, yeah, yeah, everything, you know, as recently as six months ago, things I bought are worth twice what they were. Never mind things I bought five or ten years ago.
1: Um, Crazy times.
0: Yeah, but it's fun. It's exciting that you know so many new people are coming into the into the market and into the scene and sharing expertise and enthusiasm. And I love to see new guys come into these rooms and kind of poke around about you know with questions about how the, you know what's where they should start um, and seeing where they go with it. Um,
1: yeah, I I do too, and I. Definitely want to give Luke a lot of credit. Luke's definitely been someone I've reached out to a lot and has helped me a lot along the way. It is always someone I view as super knowledgeable and very helpful. So I think, you know, making, making friends who, who can help share their experiences is, is incredibly invaluable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, we know that from doing the podcast and we don't do it that frequently because it is a lot of work, but to not only do your collecting and especially, you know, the meticulous way you do it, Luke, but then to, Take note of your knowledge and then, you know, write it down, articulate it and share it with others. Uh, it's work intensive. It is a labor of love, but it takes time and effort. And you're somewhat putting yourself at a disadvantage by sharing that information. So it really speaks to your uh, love of the hobby and collecting that you're you're out here advocating for more people to get involved and giving them the the secrets of the, the trade yeah Amen. not very not very smart
2: huh
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's because you're in it for the love of the the game and the collecting, not for not just to uh make a buck so and I think that's the you know the fact that you do that website, the fact that you're here with us, the fact that Jay and I have come to you over the years so many times with questions, and I know you've come you've parted with cards mm-hmm. you didn't want to part with for me before um, because you knew I really wanted them at some point um so I've always been grateful for that.
2: Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, it it basically just comes, this is nothing new, but basically just comes down to like, if, if like the way I collect those T207s, if there's no one around who cares and you can't talk about it and you can't really share it, then none of this would be very enjoyable, you know? So it is cool to have new people come in and, and you make new friends and it gets harder to collect, but like, it's also more, you know, it's more fun. More fun when there's a lot of people that that you know understand why you are so interested in this stuff. We can only bug our wives about it so much, you
1: know. <laughs> if anyone out there is a T two hundred seven back collector, we can definitely put you in touch with Luke.
2: Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, you. I. You I have what,
1: a T, the T two hundred seven Renaissance.
0: Yeah, and I guess this is you know I can't I went to a local card show yesterday, and there were someone with lots of T two hundred sevens. They were all recruits, re- recruit backs, but I knew nothing about them beyond backs. So I just kind of, you know, he had maybe 20 or 30 of them. I looked through them um, and things were priced very well. I just didn't know enough about them. I should
2: have messaged Luke. Now I know better. I yeah, know. There's, there's one thing you can look for with recruits is some of certain ones were printed with brown ink. And if you, if you find a brown ink recruit, that's, that's a real rarity. Yeah,
0: I you know, and, and to your point about your engagement on the more kind of technical numbers stuff, for anyone who is interested in that, uh, I do highly, highly, highly recommend going to Luke's website, that T206live.com, because I've found it an incredibly valuable resource getting into some of the nitty gritty. So, again, highly recommend visiting Luke's site, although I know you're not updating it as much. These days, Luke, I think there's an incredible library of information there for anybody. Yeah, the old articles are really good. Yeah, either you know more advanced collectors or new collectors can find a lot of invaluable information there. Thank you. Yeah,
2: I've. uh, I think I'm going to like start going back and like republishing old articles like once a week and maybe put those out on social media a little bit. There's so many collectors that art collecting now that weren't around at all when I was when I was actively writing all the time. I kind of I kind of think I'll get back into it, but it's but like I also kind of have to be honest with myself. It's been like a year plus where I just haven't really felt like it. So I'm also thinking about ways to maybe change the site a little bit to turn it into more of like a, a reference page and mm. less of a less of like a blog format. I absolutely think there's so much good stuff
0: there that, yeah, maybe if it wasn't something where it was, things were dated as such, and they were just articles about these topics, uh, you'd feel less badly about it. <laughs> but uh, definitely leave it up there in some way, shape, or form, because there's so much on there that's nowhere else. Um, yeah, definitely def- you know, Definitely
2: no plans to let the domain lapse or anything. I'm I'm definitely really proud of it. it there was a lot of time that went into that stuff, and feels kind of crazy to think how much time I I found for it, but I'm glad I did it.
1: Okay. So we just want to thank our special guest, Luke Lyon, very much. We appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise and your experiences with us. Thanks very much, Luke.
0: No problem. Thanks, guys. No, thank you. And please don't forget to visit backtoyout206life.com on the web. Check out what Luke's got to offer there. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at themonsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next time.